Charlotte Gray, one of Canada's preeminent biographers and historians, has won many awards for her work, including the prestigious Pierre Burton Award for a Body of Historical Writing, the Edna Stabler Award for Creative Nonfiction, the Ottawa Book Award, and the CAA Burke's Family Foundation Award for Biography. Her nine books have brought our past to life. A member of the Order of Canada, Gray was a panelist for the 2013 edition of CBC Radio's Canada Reads. She lives in Ottawa, where we are, in her elegant living room. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Very nice to be here. I'd like to have, have our conversation be a free-for-all. Sounds good. To talk about your process of writing biography and history books, how do you think your approach, your writing, differs from that of Pierre Burton? Well, the first and most obvious difference is half a century uh, separates us. And Pierre Burton was one hell of a writer. And you look at his books, particularly his early books now, and they are fantastic. They just uh, motor along. And uh, he has colour, he has character, he has an extraordinary uh, sort of sense of the drama of Canadian history. But uh, he also, as a man of his period, was very sexist. Uh, all the women in his books are sort of referred to as dance hall girls. The women are so much bit part players and uh -huh. fitting into stereotypes. One-dimensional? Very one-dimensional, very um, irrelevant to the main story about the man, the man who's conquering the landscape, laying the rails, governing the country, just being uh, the major actor. But no more so than others of his period? Or would you say more so? Well, because every biographer is unconsciously reflecting themselves yeah. in, in the biography. So that, you know, everything I've heard about Pierre Burton, who was a sort of larger-than-life character, yeah. was, you know, that he was... He was quite the guy, and uh, women were girls. So this is his approach to gender relations anyway. So I come along, and I thought, well, where are the women in Canadian history? So started looking for them. Susanna Moody and her sister. That's right, Pauline Johnson, mm -hmm. uh, Mrs. King, the mother of uh, William Lyon, Mackenzie King. Mm -hmm. uh, my first three biographies... Um, and then subsequent ones, such as Nellie McClung, mm -hmm. have looked at uh, women's role, yeah. roles in Canadian history. So your role has been to fill in the blanks? Um, up to a point, although I've since then broadened out. Um, I remember when I said to my wonderful editor, Phyllis Bruce, um, I think I would like to write a biography of Alexander Graham Bell. Mm -hmm. And she said, great. A new audience, and that was a euphemism for men. <laughs> okay. How long has she been your editor? Um, she hasn't edited all my books, but she's been my editor for at least uh, 15 years. And what's her best trait? She has the great skill of never being negative, always suggesting 
that you're not quite there yet, but giving you the sense that you can get there. To a coach as much as anything. Editors are always coaches mm -hmm. because it's a very delicate role. You know, an editor can't come thrashing in saying this is complete nonsense. No. They have to say, well, let's look at it from another point of view. She doesn't want to shatter your confidence, I guess. That's right. That's yeah. right. She wants to be encouraging and uh, helpful. And she is very helpful, actually. You know, the great moment I find in every book is when I'm just actually, before it's written, um, when I'm still conceiving of it and I'm talking about it to people, mm. partly to hear myself articulate what's going on in my head, but also to get their reactions and um, see what questions they ask. And she asks really good questions. Can you give an example of how she has, uh, a question of hers has helped open up a new avenue for you or stopped you from writing about something that may not be that, and I think this is the most important thing, interesting. Well, I know that at one point I said to her, what I'd really like to do for my next book is um, a collection of pieces about people who arrived in Canada and reinvented themselves. The obvious one, obviously, is Grey Owl, although he's so obvious I probably wouldn't have done him. Mm -hmm. But uh, another one is Arthur Doherty, who was the first archivist of um, the Dominion of Canada. He arrived. He was enormously important in built, establishing the um, National Archives. I wish, he, I wish we had someone like him today. Well, we have actually, there was a dark period in the archives um, when there was a really terrible um, chief archivist. But since then, in fact, we've had Guy Bertium has really, really brought the archives back to life. Mm. He's just left. Yeah. And uh, the, his successor um, is is terrific too. Weir. Leslie Weir. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I have, they're both very keen on public engagement. But just to go back to yes. Arthur Doherty for a yeah. minute, he had completely invented all his qualifications. He had no qualifications. He lied? To, he lied. He had no qualifications to yeah. be an archivist. And I thought a book about him would be, and others like him, because there's several women who come into this category, yeah. would, have, would, I think, be such fun to write. And my editor, Phyllis Bruce, listens to me as I extolled this idea and she nodded quietly and said, that's not your next book. It might be the one after that. She Just because she knew something was more important and more imminent? I think it was because she knew it wouldn't find a market. Isn't that interesting? So it's a very, it's what, it's a commercial mind she has as well? Oh yeah. Oh, in trade publishing, you have to have a very commercial mind. Right. Yeah, so she's not, She's not a copy editor, she's sort of big picture. Very big picture. Um, she's not a copy editor or a line editor. Others do that extremely well. Yeah. Um, in fact, when she's read a manuscript by me, I mean, it's just sort of gentle question marks or comments in pencil in the margin. It's never um, sort of corrections to my grammar or, you know, cutting and pasting. Right. I've recently uh, been reading uh, Robert Caro's 
book called Working, Researching, Interviewing, and Writing. What do you think of him? Breathtaking. Breathtaking in his devotion to his stated goal, which is the study of power. Breathtaking in the rigor of his research and also the grace of his writing and breathtaking in the way that he has, he's now on volume five of the Johnson, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson biography, which is, you know, I think it's now, are we up to sort of 40 years he's been writing it? Mm -hmm. He's 83 now and everyone's a bit concerned. But the, I mean, the devotion to the subject and the care with which he writes and the support he gets from his publisher, because, I mean, I think they've given up giving him deadlines. Uh, he actually mentions that, uh, he, and I think he's quite grateful for it. They don't, they don't bug him about it. It's all his friends and readers <laughs> who want, who want the next uh, volume. And yeah. he, but also he does something which uh, every biographer should do, which is he gives us not just Lyndon B. Johnson, he gives us the world in which Lyndon B. Johnson lived and worked. Uh, so you really do discover the sort of vast stretch of American power. You discover how government, particularly in, I think it's volume three, volume two, the Senate uh, works. And he's such a good writer that, you know, you, you hold his hand down all these cul-de-sacs. Here he says, uh, in order to write about political power the way I wanted to write about it, I would have to write not only about the powerful, but about the powerless as well, thoroughly enough so that I could make the reader feel for them, empathize with them, and with what political power did for them and to them. And he, he achieves that. I mean, I think that's such a crucial quality for a biography to really get inside a character mm -hmm. um, through empathy and one which you have to be really careful about because you need to uh, be able to understand the individual's motivations, but you mustn't be captured by them. And he's, he manages that delicate balance of being quite objective about LBJ at mm -hmm. the same time as explaining this very complex man. Well, it's extreme, but in order to understand these people, he actually went to live there for, in Texas for three years. And it was only after a certain amount of time that people started to feel comfortable with both him and his wife, comfortable enough to tell him what he needed to know. Did you go to places and live there for three years? or I did stay for three months in Dawson City when I was <laughs> writing the, uh, the Gold Diggers about the Yukon um, Gold Rush. But um, there are many, many differences between myself and Robert Caro, and I wouldn't even dream of even comparing myself. That would be so presumptuous. But what he is doing is a massive definitive biography of a major character in uh, American history and he has vast amount of research materials. I mean just an ocean because by definition 
important um, actors in our history, and particularly um, those white men of European uh, origin uh, who ran countries. They bequeathed to the nation these huge archives. Mm -hmm. What I do is, in fact, disinter people who have often been almost forgotten and who haven't left nearly such an archive. And it's difficult for you to get to interview people that knew them. It, in many cases it is, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, they're either, they've been dead too long, or then they haven't, my, the people I have written about have not um, had the enormous number of social contacts. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about figuring out who they were? Some of the people I have written about, particularly the sisters in the wilderness, Susanna Moody and Catherine Partrail, did leave substantial archives, both in their written works and in their letters. That was absolutely so absorbing, sitting in the National Archives here and reading the original letters. And similarly with Mrs. King, my first book, there was a wealth of letters because her son, uh, Mackenzie King, was a pack rat and kept everything. So again, there was a good archive. In my latest book, Murdered Midas, which is about Sir Harry Oakes, um, that was a real challenge because this was a man who was born in Maine and spent years looking for gold all over the world and then found a gold mine in northern Ontario. But he was obsessive about gold and not in the least bit reflective. He wasn't somebody, as far as I could see, who wrote a journal or who wrote letters. I could get glimpses of him from the memoirs and reminiscences of people who'd known him and who'd written them down uh, because he was actually murdered in 1943. So we're talking uh, 80 years ago. And I could go to the places he'd been in. You know, you look at newspapers, you, you do newspapers. I was going to say it was a huge sensation, wasn't it? Oh, his in, murder was, was a press. huge, yes, yeah. it was. But then it became overlaid with a whole lot of sort of uh, sensationalism and false interpretations of what had happened. And again, you know, you, you spend a lot of time just as I was trying to find the basic facts about his life, sort of pulling away entangled mythology and finding hidden gems. Once he's been murdered, I'm, at that point, what I'm trying to do is sort of take away all the super, the, the superstructure of sort of glorious Fleet Street exaggeration mm. uh, to see what really happened and uh, who, what kind of man he was. I actually discovered... How did you do that, though? You just, what, you kept looking for the same information that came up in each item? Actually, you know, it was very interesting. He, a man, well, the trial of the man who was accused of his murder, Mar Freddie de Marigny, Oakes' son-in-law, it was a trial that went off the rails. De Marigny was acquitted. But it was a trial in 1943 that attracted international press. And so all kinds of reporters were down there including Earl Stanley Gardner for the Hearst newspapers, yeah. who moved in with a sort of novelist idea for detail and also a novelist's disdain for facts. Yeah. So from that moment on, the, the, the story began to get embellished. But what was crucial in the story of Harry Oakes was that the first biography of him by a British journalist called Geoffrey Bocker published, in fact, 15 years after Oakes's death, and Bocker had never met Oakes, 
I realised Bocca had his own agenda when he wrote this book, and he also exaggerated how unpleasant Harry Oakes was. He made him out to be an absolute brute of a man who uh, was unkind, who was cruel to the people who worked for him, brusque with his colleagues, uh, was a complete Ari Vist who uh, had no social graces. And there were certain phrases in his book uh, that then I saw repeated in all subsequent books. So it really was a case of, you know, a corpse is open to all comers. And the first person who had tried to chart what had happened to Harry Oakes set the pattern for everybody else. So you must have wondered what Boker had against him then. I wondered what Boker's agenda was, and I just got a hint of it uh, when I understood uh, he had a particular relationship with Lord Beaverbrook, who owned the newspaper, the Daily Express, that Boker wrote for, and who also knew a lot of the um, people in the Bahamas who had known Harry Oakes and who definitely didn't want nasty rumours about his friends going around. Uh, that still doesn't explain why he's doing this hatchet job on him. Because um, the man who, in my view, was probably, may have been responsible for Oakes's murder, but there's no evidence of this, Yeah. Uh, was um, probably a friend of Lord Beaverbrook's. So they, they basically just wanted to solidify in people's minds retroactively that this guy deserved what was coming to him and he, it was him. That's exactly what happened. Bocca wrote, you know, he deserved to die. And then Bocca wrote about, uh, with no substantiation or n no basis in fact that I could discover, it may have been true, uh, that it was just an international financial conspiracy. It was nothing to do with anybody who actually lived in the Bahamas. So how did you get the, how did you even this picture up? Well, once I realised that Boker's account was suspect, that he was a really unreliable narrator, and I saw, first of all, what his own motivation was, that he wanted to maintain his relationship with Lord Beaverbrook, and secondly, that um, his book, which is a very easy and um, compulsive read, mm. had shaped all subsequent accounts of the kind of man that uh, Harry Oakes was. Um, then I just started going back and looking at everything I knew and could discover about Oakes. Now, I'm not pretending that Harry Oakes was a pleasant man. He wasn't. Mm. I mean, he was a sort of brusque, single-minded guy who went up north. All he wanted to do was to find a gold mine. And he, was, he worked his ass off to find it and then to develop it. Uh, I mean, he was just obsessive. And he was... A, I mean, Diamond in the Rough doesn't even begin to capture how crude he could be. Mm -hmm. But was he evil? No. Mm -hmm. Did he deserve it? Who deserves to be bashed in the head? So where did you get this from again? Where did you get the evening, evening up, the balance picture? It was from what? Correspondence between Geoffrey Boker, the author, and Lord Beaverbrook that was in the archives at the House of Lords in England. Did I spent a day there. And what did those correspondents say? That you should do a butcher, a, a, a hatchet job on him? 
No, uh, Beaverbrook said to Bocker, Bocker asked him if he could, wrote and asked him, they obviously already had a relationship, there was previous mm. write letters about a previous book, uh, Bocker asked him whether he could stay in Lord Beaverbrook's house in Nassau while he was doing research for this book. Mm. And he said that it was going to be a terrific book, it was going to be really juicy, he's you know, got great material. And to begin with, Lord Beaverbrook says, of course. And then the next thing you know, he's writing and saying, I don't want you to write this book. And then there's a really peculiar line about uh, when you're a good boy, you're a very good boy. Beaverbrook writes this to Bocker. When you're a good boy, you're a very good boy. Believe me, I um, <laughs> I kept looking at it and thinking, all it... All it implied to me, and of course Beaverbrook, you know, Bocker really wanted all his material to appear in Beaverbrook's newspapers. Yeah, serialised. So, yeah. So I assumed that Beaverbrook was telling Bocker, you know, I won't let my editors buy your stuff any longer if you start smearing people I know in the Bahamas. Hmm. Still haven't answered my question. Where are you getting the better side of of your protagonist? From accounts of his philanthropy. Okay. First of all, in Kirkland Lake, when he was, when suddenly he owns this gusher of a gold mine. Yeah. Then when he moves to Niagara Falls, where he um, gives generous donations of land to to the to the town. Even now, there's a um, a quite wonderful public garden and sort of open theatre just near the falls called Oaks Oaks Theatre. And then in the Bahamas, um, where he... Sorry, and you get these from local newspapers or...? In, the, in all the guidebooks. Okay. And, and certainly in local newspapers and local accounts, local yeah. histories. Are, so often there's a local historian in a place like Kirkland Lake, there was in a place like Niagara Falls, um, they've written local histories. Yeah. Uh, you can usually find the local histories and then I'd get in touch with the historians themselves. I mean, the one in Niagara Falls was hugely helpful to me. And in the Bahamas, there's this monument mm. to Sir Harry Oakes, a friend to all Bahamians, because he had done, he had provided so much employment to black Bahamians who were 90% of the population and probably about 2% of the wealth. Um, you know, it was a rather sad British colony with a white elite in it. Mm. Uh, and the white elite had shown absolutely no um, interest in the welfare of um, their fellow citizens. And Harry Oakes comes along and starts these sort of massive construction projects and te tearing up the land and building houses, employs lots of Bahamians who would otherwise be unemployed labourers. And he paid them over the regular wage. He provided meals, buses, built a school. In fact, in a couple of the memoirs by politicians, Bahamian politicians, who once the who were black and who were once the islands got their independence, then became governors. They said Sir Harry, Sir Harry Oakes did more for the Bahamian economy than anyone else in the 1930s. How wealthy was he in our terms? Bill Gates wealthy or? It's hard to make direct comparisons. He was 
often referred to in the newspapers as the richest man in the British Empire. In fact, he can't have been, because if you think of someone like the Duke of Westminster in London, who owns massive amounts of real estate, I mean, mm. Harry Oakes didn't come anywhere near that, but he was certainly worth, back then, 200 million, which translates to Ooh. several billion yeah. today. Well, where was he born again? Maine. So um, out middle of nowhere. Yeah, his, he came from a fairly middle-class family. His mother was a school teacher. His mm. father was a forestry expert and a lawyer. Yeah, no one's heard of him, except for you. But <laughs> until now. <laughs> well, the, the trial made a big stir at, at the time. Yeah. And for me, you see, the interest of this story was that a, business, a friend of mine who's a teacher's business at the Schulich School at the York University said... Why are you always writing about poets and pioneers and politicians? Mm. When are you going to write about the real business of this country? And I had, it's not a story that attracted me until I thought of Harry Oakes, because through the story of Harry Oakes discovering a gold mine and being part of the gold rush in Ontario in the early part of the 20th century, I could actually write about the importance of the mining industry in Canada, mm -hmm. and also why Toronto is a global capital of mining. And that's because of a few men, including Harry Oakes. So it sounds to me like that's one of the, the reasons you would green light certain people. And that is interesting life, interesting person, perfect vehicle for me to explore something fundamentally important. That's what I always hope to achieve. F not necessarily fundamentally important, although that was certainly true in this case. But in other of my books, I wanted to put them in the context of a pivotal period in Canadian history, for example. Mm -hmm. um, or when I did the book on the other gold rush, the Klondike gold rush in the 1890s, what I wanted to do there very deliberately was... First of all, how explain how the mechanics of somewhere going from a small community of about 300 people to a community of 30,000 people within three years in the far north mm. and show the sort of, you know, sort of the rapid layering of uh, community services that happens when um, you get a rush of people. You know, what do you have? First of all, you have to have places where you can get food. Then you need shelter then along came the mounties and then after that came the newspapers and then after that came the banks all the things that a, a thriving community requires and how how they sort of the people who are going to uh, run them are attracted to a community that has such potential mm -hmm. and the other thing about the gold rush book was i wanted to put women in the classic burton account is that you know just it's a, a bunch of um, horny horny fisted prospectors who go up there and have adventures uh, and spend Saturday nights in bars and brothels. Mm. But actually there were some pretty stunning women up there. So I wanted to put them in the story. Is that what you do with with uh, this latest book of yours? The um, uh, Murdered Midas? Um, actually, this there are fewer women in this book than in any of the previous ones I've done. Okay. This one... I wanted to do something else. One was to write about the mining history. 
But I also, in this one, for the first time in a book of this nature, I've actually put myself on the page and said, I, you know, when I read this account, I realize that, you know, the first biographer had his own agenda or in, in other places I talk about uh, how memoirs, I know how unreliable memoirs are because the writer is uh, always presenting mm -hmm. their version of their particular story. So I put myself in and then I also try and show how distrustful you should be of accounts. You should always ask, is this really accurate? Or um, where is the writer getting this information? Or why is this being said? Or why is this being said? Getting back to, to Carol, one of the revelations that he mentions is um, an early uh, editor of his says, uh, turn every page. Does that strike a chord with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. You just never know what you're going to find. Mm. And it does mean you have to sit there for a long time and keep reading. Well, yeah, he, he, in talking about Johnson, he mentioned how, you know, how much material there is. I think he, he, he seems to be a stickler for, for quantifying things, something like 83 million <laughs> pages. So he didn't turn all of those, but, you know, you have to, at least he went through each file, I think, to determine which one to pay attention to. Well, because it's a presidential library, the presidential li library itself actually quantifies the amount oh, of paper it has okay, in it. Sure. So he certainly didn't have to count it all himself. No. But actually what I've often found particularly frustrating is that I will be sitting in an archive reading material and making notes mm -hmm. and sort of I usually go in with a sense of what I'm looking for and look for it very carefully. But I read everything and then I come out and then either, you know, sort of when I'm walking in the park or in the middle of the night I realize that there's a fact I didn't note, but one that has really caught my imagination, that mm -hmm. is prompting questions in my head. And I realize I've got to go back and just check up what was that and what was that about? I think that's with him, it's, uh, it's almost like the questions are never ending. That's why he takes so long. It's, yes. You know, he has so many questions that he feels he has to answer before he sets it down. Yes. Although the other thing I find fascinating about his method of writing is that before he begins the book, he tries to encapsulate in one paragraph what it's about. That's right. And it's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult. But if you can do that, it makes the writing so much easier. Yeah, he has that paragraph sitting on his lampshade in front of him, doesn't he? That's right. Yeah. Do you do that? Well, when I write a book proposal, I always start with the sort of details and the chapter by chapter. Mm. And then I'm, from then on, I'm constantly boiling it down to um, the sort of a, a three-page account of what the book is about and what it's going to cover. And then a synopsis, which is one page. And then finally, you know, that's the elevator pitch. Yeah. Um, so I try to boil it all down, and it's the hardest thing. Mm -hmm. I, I guess it, it's expressing the, 
the best possible question that you could ask and answering that? I th- yes, and it's it's really trying to sort of articulate the question that is intriguing me. Um, at this stage, obviously, I'm selling the proposal, I'm selling the book, mm. but in fact, I'm also thinking, I'm going to be spending at least three years on this. What is going to keep me going? What is the question that uh, is the question I want to uh, answer? And I hope if I get it right, then um, that will resonate with the editor and the publisher. But it always has to be about what's going to keep my interests going rather mm. than sort of just a straight marketing tactic. So with the, the, the Toronto mining question, it was like, why did Toronto become such a, an important city? That, that's, that's an interesting question. Yes, although actually the, the first question I asked myself, because I looked at all the material on Harry Oakes, I thought, and he kept being referred to as the richest man in the British Empire. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, how did he get so rich? Canada was so poor then. And, okay, so he was a man who owned a gold mine. Well, weren't there lots of other men who owned gold mines? And gradually I realised that that was a complicated story that was really interesting. And how he was the only prospector who had taken, who had dominated the process from making a a claim to striking a vein, to controlling the the development, and then to... um, overseeing production. Nobody else, no one other individual managed to do it from A to Z. You know, that's almost exactly what Caro says about LBJ. He talks about his, uh, he's pretty well the only politician who figured out how to use the Senate. Yes. And so he was fascinated in how he did that. Yes. And that's the volume where he, the first 150 pages are about the Senate, and then you meet LBJ. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting, those, those 150 pages, mm-hmm. you know, you never at any point think, well, wait a minute, isn't this meant to be a biography of LBJ? <laughs> Just that, that sort of, as he takes you through the uh, power games. He also is famous, uh, Carol, for his biography of Robert Moses, that was the first Caro I read. That's about a thousand-page biography, and yeah. it's absolutely captivating. And that's one where he went and spoke to all the individuals who lived in the um, tenement buildings, or as many of them as he could find, that Moses pulled down... To build or, the highways. To build yeah. the highways. Although he could have, instead of displacing hundreds of mainly European Jews... Mm. Uh, he could have displaced about five families who owned big, big estates. Yeah, his efforts displaced about half a million people. That's the, the number. Yeah. He says that, uh, Carol, that to make readers not only see, but understand and feel, in italics, feel what human cost meant. Yes, I mean, again, that's the power of empathy. How do you, how do you uh, exploit that? I think it's partly, quite honestly, it is a, a genuine interest in individuals. I always, always remember giving a lecture at McGill 
few years ago on biography and how to bring a person alive on the page how, mm -hmm. so that they they actually sort of become an uh, individual in in the reader's mind and one of the people at this lecture was a wonderful wonderful historian who himself had this skill Des Morton who died very recently, recently. yeah, yeah. Uh, amazing guy afterwards we all went off to dinner and somebody said, well, why are all the best biographers women? Or so many of the best biographers women. Mm -hmm. Particularly in Britain, where there's people like Hermione Lee and others. And Des said, well, that's obvious, because uh, women love gossip. And biography, uh, if you don't have gossip in biography, it doesn't come alive. And I, I was sort of on the brink of thinking, that's pretty sexist. And then I also thought, but it's also... You know, that's been traditionally women's role, has been the, the emotional centre of a family life or the um, uh, caring about how others feel. Mm -hmm. Women have always been so encouraged and socialised to, to, to feel that way. Yeah, he, he, yeah, I suppose he could simply have said women are more empathetic. There's empathy and then there's gossip. Well, there's a tinge of, uh, what, spite or something in there, isn't there? Schadenfreude well, or whatever it is. Gossip is is um, sort of talking about what's going on on in other people's lives. Yeah, I mean you're typically encouraged, or I have been, not to talk about people, but to talk about ideas. Which is also, of course, reflects on the way that uh, academics view biography. Mm -hmm. That um, biography is <clears throat> a sort of slippery narrative, exaggerating the agency of an individual. Whereas at, at a university, you should be talking purely in, in terms of, you know, the, in, it, the intellectual challenges, ideas. Yeah. So, so but, but, but biographies that are just ideas biographies are often pretty boring. Yes, I've, I've just read one which was like that. Let's have the name of it. <laughs> uh, it's Richard Evans's biography of Eric Hobsbawm, the historian. Never comes alive. Lots yeah. of fascinating facts. You hear a lot about gunfights in westerns. You don't hear so much about hauling up the water after perennial tear. Oh, yes. Uh, but both acts are equally part of the story, the history, of the courage it took to settle America's frontier. Lovely. I'm with him on that. Well, it's just a complete picture, isn't it? You, yeah. You don't you, you you cut out the hardships that women went through, and you don't have a complete picture. I always found it interesting that in this country, you know, the the most uh, outspoken and the most successful early women activists were from the West, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that they were the ones who first got the vote. This is, you know, we're talking about Nellie McClung and others. Yeah. And. Um, in fact, it's logical when you think that that urge spread among the early settler families who, where the, there was huge recognition for the importance of the women's role, that a man couldn't run a large farm unless he'd got a wife who would supply him, you know, to, hopefully they'd have several children who could help them with the work, with their farm work that they um, she would do all the meals, she would feed, feed the farmhands, she would dress the children, she would 
educate the children in many cases. I mean, the role of the women on the prairies was crucial. And so when women started coming out of the temperance movement, saying, well, wait a minute, if we want to affect the way this country is developing, uh, we need a voice in politics, which we, we need the vote. The men on the prairies were much more inclined to support this outrageous demand than in Toronto, where it took much, much longer and sort of the gender division was much more uh, dramatic. And that's because the men out west appreciated all the hard work that women did? They, they could, you know, they, they saw themselves as together mm-hmm. building the mm-hmm. country. Yeah. It's interesting with Carl, uh, he couldn't do what he, he does without his wife, Ina. Without Ina. Yeah. She's a writer herself and she's um, crucial in terms of the research. I wonder if she's telling him to say this. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. There's also uh, his emphasis on a sense of place. You know, I mentioned that he, he moved to Texas and lived there. What, what's your thought on the importance of place in your work? Huge. Particularly when I'm writing sort of straight Canadian history. Mm-hmm. You know, landscape is so important in this country. You know, the sense of endless uh, wilderness and endless and limitless resources, which we're only now beginning to realize is a sort of desperately wrong attitude. Mm. I mean, that's been huge in this country. Also, just sort of pacing out, if I'm writing a scene set in a city, pacing out the difference, the, the distance between uh, houses and um, looking at where people lived. I mean, you know, then you can visualize it, then you can describe it in a way that uh, the reader will recognize the little Georgian house with uh, um, a red front door and uh, the brickwork slightly decayed um, and the sagging gutter. You know, you can make the reader see it because you've seen it. He talks about the sense of excitement that uh, LBJ felt uh, when he was early 20s in, in, in Washington, I think it was. And uh, when, uh, particularly when he used to walk to work, and Carl eventually figured out that that LBJ walked to work at about five thirty in the morning. So, so he did the same thing. And what he saw was the sunlight pouring in on these buildings, and what a inspiration it yeah. was. I loved that passage. I thought, yeah. um, I and I once again was so admiring of Caro, sort of needing to really go so deep that you you follow the 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 daily routine of your subject. Mm-hmm. Also you realise too that if you when you go to a place, it's so easy to glibly make mistakes if you haven't actually been there. <clears throat> when I was writing the biography of uh, Pauline Johnson, who was the um late 19th, early 20th century poet. I mean, now, of course, I mean, she's half Mohawk, half English. She styled herself the Indian princess. She often used her Mohawk name, Terawanawada. She grew up on Six Nations in a marvelous house, a very elegant house that's still there, with two front doors. This is so great for a biographer because it's so symbolic. One front door opened onto the road from Brantford. 
The other front door opened onto the Grand River so that uh, her father's relatives could uh, arrive by canoe. And so I had read this and looked at pictures of the house and seen that the two front doors, and I talked about, you know, so from an upper window, she could uh, look out and see the Grand River lazily curling past the house. I got there. There's no way she could have seen the Grand River from the upper window because the house is actually set back about half a kilometre uh, from the river mm -hmm. and there's a, a wood in between. And I, you know, I could have made a horrible mistake. Yeah. So you really, obviously, accuracy and facts are important. They are. Pierre Burton always said, don't overload your manuscript with dates. And I, it's very good advice, mm. uh, but um, I'm always, I, I'm amused because one of my first readers, I circulate my manuscripts quite widely to make sure I've... Um, so it's your version of Twitter, is it? Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> I have very good friends, you know, they, they'll read pages rather than characters. And my husband often says, what year was this? What year? When did this happen? Uh, so I put in a few then. But generally, people... You know, too many dates, it's like scaffolding, obscuring the view. Again, it gets in, in the way of the story and yeah. moving, moving ahead. Yeah, and I suppose the other thing is these days, you know, if someone's interested, they'll just Google. That's right. I mean, of course, Wikipedia has made a big difference to biography writing because mm. now, you know, who needs to read a biography in a book because you can just... Google the name and um, get the facts from Wikipedia. Which well, you, I, want, you want to lose yourself in a person's life, though. That's what I want to do. I mean, I want exactly. to get wrapped up in the period. I want to understand what took place. Uh, I want to feel the excitement that they felt. That's your role, not Wikipedia's, right? Yes, but it's also led to sort of interesting new approaches to biography. Mm -hmm. So you get biographies of events or group biographies of, um, you know, three or four sisters. Just uh, because what, the relationship wouldn't be covered in Wikipedia? Absolutely, it wouldn't yeah. be. I mean, yeah. Wikipedia doesn't do relationships. No. <laughs> uh, or, or, you know, the portrait of a marriage, or different ways of coming at lives that take you far, far beyond the facts that you can get in Wikipedia. Caro talks about a moment that, uh, 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 sentences that he, he'll never forget. And this was a, he was looking for a, for a literary agent. And he's concerned about money. He can't devote himself to doing this biography while working at the same time. So she says about the money, is, is that what you're worried about? Then you can stop worrying right now. I can get you that by just picking up the phone. Everybody in New York knows about this book. And he thought no one did. I just wonder, were there any kind of sentences that people in the business have said to you that you'll never forget? I guess in terms of my own ego, the first time I saw somebody described in a publisher's catalogue, a young writer who'd done a lively biography, and the, ca the catalogue described her as the next Charlotte Grey. 
<laughs> I mean, I was both flattered but also appalled because mm. I kept thinking, well, wait a minute, what about the last Charlotte Grey? Right. So that, yeah. that kind of... Was that early on? It was about 10 years ago. The, mo- the sentences I love hearing are from readers where they say things like, you, you know, I used to hate history, but you brought it back to life for me. Or um, this, even, you know, I used to love it when they said, this read like a novel, but I learned so much. But now I, I do like that, except one of the things that exasperates me is that in, I think in Canada, fiction is so privileged above non-fiction. Non-fiction... Nonfiction now, if you look at the um, shortlists for nonfiction prizes, they tend to be so dominated by memoirs. And um, it's as though the only nonfiction people, uh, readers, or publishers anyway, think readers want, is um, sort of a, a personal accounts of tragedy. And, you know, so that. We're just not getting the books we should be in history or history of science or the schools of creative writing are dominated again by, are monopolized by teachers who can only talk about fiction and short stories. It's so different from both the US and the UK. And it also doesn't actually reflect the book buying market where nonfiction outsells fiction. You're talking about Canada specifically then? Yes. I'm talking a lot about Carl here. I'm not talking about you, though. You must have some interesting ideas about what makes for the best possible kind of biography, or history for that matter. Have we co- we've covered a fair amount, but anything else that, uh, that comes to your mind? I think that... Um you know, biography is at a very crucial stage at the moment mm-hmm. for two reasons. One is that the academic historians have always disapproved of biography because um, they felt that it sort of exaggerated the impact of an individual on history. They always and, looked down on Pierre Burton. Oh, yeah. totally, totally. Yeah. There are wonderful writers within the academy. I certainly don't mean to... Mm-hmm. generalized but but I know that young historians sort of new doctoral students or new graduates they've really learned micro rather than macro history and they've learned a distrust of biography they've learned to do academic writing which has usually crushed any literary impulse uh, that they might have um, nourished so that the academy's lost touch with a popular audience University historians, by and large, are not writing for the general public. And they have the luxury of not having to worry about the number of books they sell. Sales are immaterial. All that matters, actually, is sort of what they need for tenure. And allows them to ignore the fact that the most important thing about a book is that it's not boring. They certainly wouldn't agree with that statement. (laughs) But the... um, no, but if you want their, if you want the students to actively participate and get excited about what they're learning, or supposed to the, learn, well, the students actually do sort of they they're funneled into this um, system, and many of them do find it actually quite intellectually enriching. But it has nothing to do with um, 
giving to an educated citizenry a sense of the past and particularly a sense of how the past has shaped the present. Mm. I, for the last year, have been involved several times in the discussions on Sir John A. Macdonald and whether his name should be taken off schools, whether his statues should be removed from um, outside Victoria City Hall and other places. I think they've done that already. They've done it. And it just infuriates me, yeah. uh, not because I want to be in the position of defending a white supremacist or even sort of trying to justify the establishment of residential schools, but because if you have an ahistorical society where there is no understanding that um, there's a vast difference between yesterday and today, but yesterday has shaped today. And yesterday isn't all evil. Yesterday is not all evil. And that you have to, with someone like Sir John A. Macdonald, say the damage done by his policies towards indigenous people uh, has lasted through the generations and has been appalling. At the same time, his role in the establishment of the creation of Canada is vital. And you could even argue that if he hadn't been around, uh, we would all be Americans because we'd never have uh, managed to get those scrappy little British North American colonies to clump together mm -hmm. and turn their backs on the United States. And so, you know, his agency was crucial. And we can thank him for that. We don't have to say, well, that's worthless because he doesn't meet today's moral standards on another of his policies. So what's the solution uh, to that then, is to have a contextual... To have more history in schools. Yeah, that's another topic. But with the statue, is it to have a, a, a text associated with it that gives you, the kind you, of story that you've just told? Um, you change the plaques so that you have... You know, we should have in this country a lot of plaques, which I hope would they'd get a very creative, very literary writing, because they're all going to be on the one hand, on the other. Yeah. And you also have more statues. You have statues of uh, the people who, in retrospect, we realized fought against whatever the prevailing wisdom then was that turned out to have been horribly wrong. So in other words, uh, as far as statues are concerned, doing the same thing you're doing with biography. One would hope, yes, exactly. Can we have more people on this landscape, please? Can we have more people other than um, the sort of the big macho Burton heroes who were mm. conquering North America? So instead of tearing down, putting more up? Bringing more voices in. Any other thoughts on um, biography, uh, history, the writing of history in Canada? I think that the writing of history and biography uh, is becoming more and more important because I feel we're losing our grasp on the past. I'm conscious of this because I also read a lot of fiction. And when I first arrived in Canada 40 years ago, many of the novelists were writing historical novels, you know, when I'm, and, and over the next sort of couple of decades, whether I'm thinking of Jane Urquhart's Away or um, Margaret Atwood's book about 19th century Ontario. Elias Grace? Alias Grace, yeah. or that wonderful Western writer who was writing about cowboys. But, mm. um, but I mean, there was, I, I learned so much Canadian history through the fiction 
that's all gone. Young Canadian writers are not writing historical fiction. No, they're writing for an international audience. They're writing for an international audience. Um, You know, this is a a country of enormous diversity, uh, but it's not a country of a lot of readers, so that all writers are being encouraged to sort of think beyond our borders. So I don't think Canadians are getting history in their fiction, and they're certainly not getting it in their education, and there are fewer and few sources of it in the non-fiction world. So that makes me sad. And I think it's disturbing because through our history, we can understand how this country and the United States, for instance, are very, very different. Why we diverge, not just how we diverge, where you know we have different views on gun laws or gay marriage or whatever, but why we diverge. How did that come about? And you have to go look backwards to discover how we established and, and evolved a different set of values. But you can't do that just by reading today's newspapers, which well, nobody reads newspapers, by watching Fox News or reading Twitter or um, scrolling through uh, Facebook. Okay, let's, let's, uh, let's end on a positive uh, note. What do you think are the best two or three history books that have been written about Canada and the best two or three historical fiction books? that have ever been written. About Canada? Yeah. Whoa, that's the kind of thing where I realized... I put you on the, on the spot. Yeah, and I... I Favourites, then. I love Jane Urquhart's Away. I think it's amazing. I defended that on Canada Reads. I love... So I'm talking fiction here. Mm-hmm. I love... Um, oh, I love Sandra Gwynne's non-fiction book about... Um, the Capital? The Capital, yes. That's... Full of wonderful gossip. Totally full of gossip, yeah. but tells you so much about early, yeah. the early days of uh, the Dominion of Canada. I, I love anything by Margaret Macmillan. That's not about Canada, no. but uh, she's a brilliant writer and she really, you know, she brings life to diplomatic history. Mm-hmm. And one of the things she does is rely a lot on memoirs for the personal details that uh, make such a difference. I think that there are good novels that talk about Toronto today and but give you a sense of the past too. The Giller winning novel by Andre Alexis. The 15 Dogs? Yes. I mean, I, I got a sense of the, of the Toronto geography and mm-hmm. I found that gave me a sense of a sort of established city. It's maybe not a historical novel. Mm-hmm. But um, I also think that um, we are getting novels about more recent Canadian history from authors who come from sort of first or second generation immigrant families. Again, the the Giller winner who wrote half about China, but then coming to Canada and the impact. Madeleine Tian. Yeah, Madeleine Tian's book I thought was, told me a lot about Canada and the way, and, and what it is like for an immigrant here. And of course, it, she has her character coming to Vancouver in the 1990s. So that's now history. Yeah. Um, but in terms of more uh, conventional historical novels, I, I'm losing the name, The Englishman's Boy. Ah, uh, yes. Van der Haag, was it? Guy Van der Haag's books, uh, which there were two or three 
Um, they were mm-hmm. wonderful books about out west. What about nonfiction? Other than uh, Sandra Gwynn. Mm-hmm. I've been are... hearing a lot about just for because I'm turning my eye to politics, to uh, John English's. John English's biographies of Trudeau, Trudeau and of Pearson. Very solid, particularly the Pearson one, I thought was those but, biographies. But I mean, they should be. We should have really respected academics like John English mm-hmm. writing about prime ministers. Yeah. What books do we have that tell us, that get beyond that, underneath that political layer? Because it's politics that's always sort of knit this country together. What great non-fiction writers I mean, we are. talked about Pierre Burton. Is he worth reading or not? He is in the same way that Dickens is worth reading. Mm. It's lively, wonderful, engaging stuff. And it's but it's, accurate, o- but it's it? old-fashioned. Right. And is Burton accurate? Um, he's not like Farley Mowat. No, he's not. He's, but? He's, Burton had an army of uh, research assistants. He made mistakes, but you know we all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgive him those just for this sheer energy and bravado of what he did. And he did it at a time when nobody else was doing it. And he did it despite academic scorn. Mm, And some of those academics, like Jack Granitstein, have sort of publicly said they were wrong to be so snobbish, that they, in fact, now realise that they've lost their popular public audience. And um, uh, we need the Pierre Burtons of this world to engage um, the popular audience in our in our history. No one else. I'll think of five names as soon as you leave. As soon as you switch the microphone off. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, our interview is now history. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you didn't mind doing it. It was terrific. I thought it was a wonderful conversation. Good. Let's hope some other people do too. I hope so. It seemed to be... I think I was all over the map. Well, that's because I was questioning you all over the map, so... No, it was fun. Thank you, Nigel. Your latest novel again is... Novel. novel. <laughs> when I are you going to write a novel? <laughs> that's the last question. When are you writing a novel? <laughs> I, that question always sort of makes my... <laughs> me grip my fingers because you know again it suggests that a novel is a finer literary yes, yeah, achievement yeah. than a, a really good non-fiction book or biography yeah and it's and, not I, don't, I mean of course we can all remember novels that we've been completely wrapped up in but Richard Holmes's Coleridge I remember just being the same way so it, you're right Caro's book about Robert Moses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, was better than any most novels, you know, and it was a a brick of a book to carry around, mm-hmm. and with a huge cast of characters, and he kept mm. it all together, and he kept it moving. Mm. So your latest work of nonfiction is it's uh, murdered Midas, a millionaire, his gold mine, and a strange death on an island paradise, and it breaks down into three sections. The first is on how, how Harry Oakes got so rich, and that's about mining in Northern Ontario, because I love those stories. I love the giving me the sense of how this sort of vast country actually was slowly developed. The second and middle section is about 
Harry Oakes's death and the trial of his murderer and the acquittal in Nassau in the Bahamas. And then the third section is the afterlife of how Harry Oakes's story got so distorted by subsequent writers and how mendacious biographers can be. <laughs> Who said that? There was some famous biographer that crapped all over uh, biographers. Well, John Updike said that a biography is really just a novel with an index. Okay. Very good. Thanks so much for your time. Nigel, a great pleasure.